How's it going, everyone? So before we dive into the episode, I really want to say thank you to everyone that is listening in, that's tuning in, that's enjoying this content and getting value from it. I really love that. That's why I do it. Um, But there's a huge amount of you that are listening, that are not subscribed, not following the podcast. And I really want to encourage you to please follow and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening or viewing this on. Um, it really helps out the podcast. It helps out the algorithm. It helps more people hear this content that you already find helpful and that they hopefully will as well. So if you go ahead and subscribe or follow the podcast on, on any platform that you're listening on and please share it with your friends, that'll be great. All right. Thanks everyone. Let's get into the episode. How's it going everyone? Security unfiltered episode 44. Today, I have a really awesome, interesting guest for you guys. Uh, He is the former CISO of the United Nations. And so we talk about how he got into IT, when he got into IT, what that was like. And we even talk about uh, Russia and Ukraine, the conflict that's going on over there, his thoughts on it, and, uh, you know, what it was like being the CISO for the United Nations. I think uh, there's some different aspects to it that I for sure d- did not know. Um, I did not, you know, realize kind of what's entailed with that, but we get into it uh, with Doug. And so I'm going to put Doug's uh, social media in the description of this episode below. And as always, If you guys enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts uh, for this podcast if you enjoy it. Those reviews help me out a whole lot more than you can even realize, really. Um, Another thing is if you also enjoyed the episode, go ahead and share it. And pretty soon here, probably within the next two weeks, I have some very exciting developments um, that I will be talking about, but just wanted to remind you guys, um, that that is coming up. So thank you guys. I hope you enjoy the episode. I definitely enjoyed talking with Doug. Thanks everyone. How's it going, Doug? Thanks for, uh, being willing to coming to come on the podcast here. Well, thank you for having me, Joe. It's, uh, I appreciate it. It's actually pretty good. I live down in uh, Sunny Isles, Florida, so I'm on the apartment on the beach here, so it's not too bad. Oh, man. You live in Florida? It's like uh, semi-paradise down there, right? Well, down here it is. It's very nice. I mean, the the coldest day we had this year, it was 57 degrees. <laughs> that was Yeah, the you know, I, I, got, uh, I got some family that live, like, in the far southern tip of Florida. And uh, whenever it starts hitting like below zero in Chicago, they start messaging me and they're like, oh, cold front just came in. It's 65. Might have to throw on a jacket. Like, you know what? I don't need this sort of negativity, guys. Yeah, my daughter lives up in Michigan. They had a in Lansing. And actually, they say the winter hasn't been as bad. So one day I called when it was 57 and I was just talking and I didn't mean it in a bad way. I was just and I said, you know, I'm putting on a jacket because it's like 57 degrees. And she goes, it's eight degrees, dad, eight degrees, single digits. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh, man. That's, you know, I, I typically don't like hot weather at all. Like I, I really dislike it. But last summer, my wife and I went to Hawaii for the first time. And, uh, you know, when you check the weather, it, it says that it's like 80, 88 or whatever. But the wind comes off the ocean so quick, it just blows all that heat out yeah. to the ocean. And so you never feel like it's hotter than like 70 or 75. Um, I was really blown away by that. Like that, that was the first time I've been in a warm climate where I was like, oh, I could I could move here. <laughs> easily yeah hawaii is like that because it's one of the islands it's like in the caribbean the best island to go to is aruba technically it's a desert really yeah it is very dry very little rain and the weather really never changes and it's perfect and it never gets by hurricane either. it's never had a direct hit because it's too far south in the caribbean oh huh. 
Because I'm, I didn't it's, know my that. Fa- it's my favorite island. And the Caribbean is my favorite island. It's perfect. And it's great food, great people, great, and, you know, they, it's entertaining. Yeah, I don't think I've ever really been to any of the other, like, islands in the Caribbean. I've been to Jamaica, but I feel like that almost doesn't count. Yeah. Um, that's like a main one, right? Like, everyone typically goes to that one. Yeah, Jamaica is a common one. So you have places in the Bahamas, you have St. Thomas, St. Croix, some of those areas, St. John. I was in Jamaica way back, but I was doing a security assessment for the United Nations in Kingston. So hmm. it was uh, slightly more problematic. <laughs> it wasn't, I wasn't on vacation. <laughs> wow. Well, let's talk about that. I, I mean, you know, let's let's go back to like how you got into IT. Because... Um, and so I asked this question because everyone comes from a different background, right? Um, I haven't, I've interviewed a lot of different people. I have a lot of different people that I know and every, everyone seems to get into IT and security from just totally different backgrounds. I don't think I've found the same one twice. Yeah. Actually, it's by osmosis. I was working with Smith Land Beecham at the time before it was Glasgow. And I was part of the electrical group, electrical department group. And that's when they started deploying networks. Hmm. Uh, you know, when they first started putting computers on people's desktop, connecting it to the AS600 and so on. You know, this is back then, the, <laughs> right after Telnet. Uh, so they, you know, they said they had a wire. It connected it to the wall, so they gave it to the electrical. And I was like, well, what do we know about this? <laughs> so I started running fiber. And believe it or not, our muxes were not even Ethernet. They were 10-base T. That's what the whole first network was. Ethernet was just becoming a standard. That was 2002 at that time. Wow. And eventually everybody went to Ethernet. So from there, it just took off. And, then, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've been working with computers since 87. And I have worked with computers in the Navy in specific projects, but not in networking as per se. And then I uh, I was with them. And then I said, listen, I need to take some classes here, guys. I'm not an expert in so, you know, I went and took some classes and then eventually from there I moved on and went to a, a ISP, which is actually New York City, which ran AOL New York at the time. People don't realize AOL New York was just too, uh, just too little uh, on the 14th Street. It was just two racks. That was it. Wow. And they would bring in and, and bring us in into the, you know, back, if you remember what's called the Hunts Groups. They used to call in with modems. I had the Hunts Group and then we had the... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, then we had like T3s connecting, so that gave it. Well, that was it. That was huh. AOL New York, and uh, that's where I first started getting introduced. And it was '98 into cybersecurity. We started putting up firewalls for financial companies, and even back then, I remember there, there was a an argument whether a proxy was better than a firewall. It wasn't until uh, when you came up and, you know, and did what they called uh, state, you know, uh, stateful inspection that it made them because before every packet used to get inspected. Every spot got stopped. You know, later on, the technology caught up. That's what an IPS does. But basically, stateful inspection basically says, well, if it meets this criteria, let's say port 80 from Doug to Joe, and then it just looks at that. If it doesn't change that state, then it runs it through. So that's how firewalls really became to be implemented. And then antivirus started to come up. And then, you know, uh, you have malwares. And so that's actually how I, I, I started out. And then, you know, it grew from there. And then I've been doing it ever since. <coughs> Wow, that's uh, I mean that's that's like right from the beginning of when like modern IT was being built. That's uh, I, I feel like that that would have been a really interesting time, a really frustrating time, <laughs> also to like get into it and start learning and deploying all this new stuff. You know, it was exciting. Yeah. It was a brand new field, you know, uh, a lot of companies coming up, a lot of companies disappear, a lot of great ideas. Some of them were functional, some were not. Some of them were bought by the big boys. Uh, but it was exciting, uh, you know, and it, it, even till today, I tell everybody, uh, I'm always recruiting because we're very short right now. Cybersecurity has a massive shortage worldwide. I think last I looked was 4.2 million jobs. Yeah. Uh, and there's no CISOs. We can't find CISOs. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a problem now. But, you know, back then it was a brand new field and it was, you know, kids who wanted to tinker and, you know, you had, you had, you had to know hacking. It wasn't you could yeah. the gear, so you had to talk to the other side. So it was it was very interesting. I found it very exciting. I I, would, I really enjoyed that time. And then, you know, the threats became, uh, back then the threats were, uh, you know, groups like, uh, you know, Decau or, uh, you know, other hacking groups even before hacktivism and stuff actually came up. So they were just, so the, you know, it was like a game. A lot of these were just regular, uh, you know, 
hackers who would put a little, uh, you know, could I say a feather on their cap, leave you a little note, say I was here, Kilroy was here type of thing. Hmm. And then you started getting what the, the, the guys who destroyed, you know, what I call the whackers. Uh, they started whacking networks and destroying networks uh, through malware. And then the criminal gangs began to pick up, uh, which a lot of them came out of, uh, uh, you know, what happened when the Russia collapsed, there was a lot of these well-educated uh, scientists who had nothing to do. So the, the Russian mob came out of the KGB. So the KGB actually got weakened down. They started out and said, look, we have all these great minds. So that's how they really came up with the Russian business network, which was huh. out of St. Petersburg. So they grew out of the St. Petersburg area. Uh, and that's when, you know, cyber criminals really became uh, part of it. And then they became state sponsorship. North Korea got into this as a source of income for them. And they're poor as hell, so they, anything they can do, they're going to they're gonna use them. And then Russia, since they had that extension, they went ahead and uh, used them for other means. Uh, a lot of people don't know this. I was at the UN at the time, but the Russian business network was being uh, pursued. And they knew they were being hosted out of St. Petersburg. So remember, if you go back to like 2007, 2008, when Ukraine, uh, they were shutting off the gas to Ukraine. Uh, right. You know, then there was negotiations. At that point, Russian Business Network returned to Kiev. So that's part of the negotiations you never see in the front page. Mm. <laughs> so Russia wanted to take off the heat, but they were still working for them. And then all of a sudden, you got state sponsorships like China. So now it's going into espionage, and now it's becoming a weapon. It's a weapon now where you can actually shut down utility companies and, and systems. And now with the ransomware, it's a, it's a massive business. You know, it's uh, And ransomware has evolved. I mean, if you go back... You know, when ransomware first came out, it was just, okay, we hold your hostage, you don't pay us, well, we don't give you the encryption key, goodbye, you got to restore everything from backup. Well, that evolved. Now, Petty and now and some of the other ones that came up, but now all of a sudden they're going in there and they're saying, well, if you didn't give us this, we're going to whack your entire network. So it went from a guy just coming up and says, give me your money to him saying, I'm going to blow your head off. Yeah. So now it's, it's evolving. And now it's evolving even further with some of the other attacks that is coming. So it's it. There's like anything else, criminals and everything just evolved. And then the state sponsorships have made it much harder. And that's where I think cybersecurity has failed to catch up is that these are well-organized groups. They're well-funded. And the problem with cybersecurity and always will be is that we have to be right 100% of the time. This has got to be right once. Yeah. And that's it. And then, you know, you're on the front page of the newspaper. Right. Yeah, that's very true. You know, I feel like working for private companies, we don't, Often we don't see that organized crime side of cybersecurity, right? Like maybe our company gets hit with ransomware. Um, it's typically, I, I don't want to say it's not that big of a deal, right? But typically it's not an organized crime group or maybe it's a small sect of it and they're just looking for the money, right? They're not looking for anything else. Um, but I feel like, you know, you're probably very well versed in it due to your experience at United Nations being the CISO. Um, so you can, can you talk to me a little bit about like maybe what that was like? Um, you know, what what does that include? I, I, like, are you going around to these different, you know, countries and assessing their security posture? Um, are you sending assets and resources to those countries if they're impacted by you know, a cyber attack. What What is that? Uh, yes and no. It depends. The UN, if you're a member state, uh, will offer a free assessment. And they can do an economic assessment. They can do whatever. So they send an entire team. And part of it is the IT infrastructure because today you cannot exist without IT. So part of that, I let some of those teams that we go in there, uh, like in Bolivia and some of the other countries, you'll come in, you make an entire assessment, then you make a, secure, a recommendation, both for networking and for the security side. So that's actually a service that is extended to these countries. Let's say you're trying to move. An example is uh, Cambodia wants it to move into uh, tourism. Uh, you know, so they came in and they had an assessment, a business assessment that says this is the way you would do it. But then you have you still have to do the IT and the security side because you have to secure as tourists are going there. So that is part of it. Uh, we also provided guidelines standards and procedures, uh, which companies uh, rolled off. A lot of people don't know this, but most company, most countries, specifically in developing countries, or even some of the larger ones, buy through the UN. Because hmm. the UN has a book. In other words, where it's a set price. And if you're a UN member, you can buy directly through the UN. 
So huh. an, an example of that is that people talk about, you know, Israel is um, the largest, the U.S. is the largest donor to Israel. Well, one of the things that they have to buy for the U.S. So U.S. buys, uh, Israel buys almost all their goods right through the U.N. embassy back into Israel. So it's like a, it's a, it's a circle. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know that uh, that was a function. I mean, honestly, I didn't even know that the assessments were like a function of the U.N. That's that's pretty interesting that they do that. So you, you've you probably seen just about everything out there. <laughs> yeah, some stuff I can't talk about. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, uh, did, did the U.N., I mean, I, I don't – know if you were there during this time frame right but did uh did they send out a team when ukraine was first being attacked or they they may have not right because um and i mean specifically back in the cyber attacks i think it was like 2013 2014 Mm -hmm. um they may have my thought is that they may have not because it wasn't a un you know it wasn't a part of the un at the time right well, you have to understand that there's permanent members and they carry a lot of weight. Okay. You have the United States, England, France, China, Russia. So the UN technically is a neutral body. You cannot take sides. Now, the Ukraine could have come to us and said, you need, we need some assistance and stuff like that. So we could provide uh, assistance, but we cannot technically take sides, even though you knew that it was the Russians. And the Russians actually did a pretty, because they shut down, I think, a quarter of their entire uh, electricity they were able to shut down. It was so bad yeah. they had to send crews out there by hand to turn it on. Yeah. Now, that, now you're getting into an area which, to me, is where a lot of this is evolving. And this is where I think a lot of these threats are coming from, is that now you're putting human life in danger. Uh, you know, Specifically today with telemedicine and some of the other ones, the people are being monitored equipment, people that are on oxygen equipment and so on and so yeah. on. You shut down the electricity. People think, I'll give you an example. People really do believe that we're a, a data-driven society, which we are. But in reality, we're an electrical-driven society. You shut down electricity, you stopped everything cold. Yep. So that's actually, people tend to, to see only the fruition of what electricity has given us. But at the end of the day, we're an electrical society. Even this conversation, because we have electricity, we're connected <laughs> to the internet. Yeah. I I think people are starting to see that a little bit more. They're waking up a little bit because now wars are being kicked off and started with cyber attacks. And, you know, it's in the news. It's on CNN, right? Like, oh, well, what's the cyber attack? They shut off the power. Like, (laughs) you know, can you imagine the lights just being shut off and now you're being invaded and you don't know what's going on. I mean, I'm sure that there's a, a huge amount of mass confusion when something like that happens, you know? Um, I I don't think I even realized the essentialness of electricity until my sister got sick with uh, kidney disease and she had to be on dialysis at home. And when the power would go out in the summer, you know, after a big storm or something the hospital would literally call and say, like, if it's not on within two and a half days, we're admitting her because, you know, she needs the treatment. I was like, oh, wait, if the power goes out, she's legitimately at risk of dying. Yeah. And that's what I was saying. So you're actually, these attacks now, once once human life becomes affected, it's a terrorist attack. Yeah. And and that's when you start changing, is this an act of war? I mean, the United States went to war specifically around terrorism. You know, they invaded Afghanistan. So I think the conversations are now starting to change. I've, I've had a few with some senior individuals who are, who are shifting their thinking and saying, you know, maybe we should start considering this act of war. So there's a, a thinking around that. Uh, I'm actually going to be honest with you. I'm pro that. I think one of the things, because you have this many uh, member, you know, states sponsored and protected criminal groups because they work right. for them. You know, it's a... In a way, they work indirectly. They make their money, and then the state gets what they want. Uh, so I think you know we we have to start thinking that just because they don't invade us uh, kinetically doesn't mean there's not an attack. Right. And I believe that we should have to start taking like the smaller countries, like Ukraine and some of the other ones. They they use the NATO mentality, which is an attack on one, attack on all. So you start making group, and what you do is you do a counterattack. So they attack you, you attack them, of course. So this becomes a cycle. 
because they're going to retaliate. But that's what war is. You wanted both sides to feel a level of, of pain. Eventually, cooler heads will prevail because we cannot continue this because, you know, we, we don't function and people are standing around with no electricity and they're suffering. What that does is that it's a precedent. Now you know next time that there's a criminal activity or an act which is coming from your country, which you're not actively trying to shut down, or if it's sponsored by you, there's going to be a retaliation. That's what war is. I mean, you see that in the Ukraine right now. A lot of countries right. are lined up against Russia. Why? Because war has to be painful. If it's not painful, then forget it. The aggressors will always keep being aggressive. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I, You know, honestly... I've been thinking about that uh, for a while, um, you know, even even before Russia invaded Ukraine, is that <clears throat> these cyber attacks, they have so much impact now. There's no way that you can't consider them to be an act of war. Um, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about like, I don't think you are either just talking about like the individual hacker that isn't associated with any group that might be, you know hacking something to, I, I don't know, right? Like get some notoriety, right? That's a actual thing still. Um, we're talking about these state-sponsored actors, and I feel like it doesn't even have to be qualified as like that state claiming that hacking group, right? Because there's a bunch of hacking groups that operate out of Russia that Russia claims that they have nothing to do with them and they don't know who they are. They can't find them. Um, but... I find it extremely hard to believe that Putin doesn't know exactly what's going on in his country at all times. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good point. And this exactly goes to the point. They may not know every one of them. There may be small right. groups that activate just for money. But if you're actively trying to prosecute and going after them, that's one thing. When you're looking the other way, that tells you another thing. There's no way that China can come around and says that we have these groups that are hacking and doing stealing and whatever, and we don't know about when they have the Chinese firewall. <laughs> right. Okay, there's so, literally no way. <laughs> there's no way. I'm sorry. There's no way. I, I had a friend of mine who was the uh, deputy chief of cybersecurity for the FBI. He's now out okay. of the FBI. He's retired. And he was doing an investigation into these individuals. Uh, which they were able to prosecute one back in the States. But when he went into Russia, he couldn't shut down his iPhone. You got to take out the battery. Wow. So if you have that level of, we, we tend to forget that they build everything in China, pretty much everything, yeah. all the electronics. And if people are thinking they're not putting in back doors on everything, you got to be stupid. I just put it that way. That was proven that they're actually doing that um, with, what was that? What was that company? It was like Hawaii or something. Yeah, Hawaii. Yeah, where they were just putting back doors and everything that they made. And it was being used like at like government facilities and stuff, you know, it's, I, you know, I, I would love to go to China um, because there's a lot of history there. I love traveling. Um, I think it would be an amazing trip, but I can't get around the privacy aspect of it. Um, the only way that I would ever be able to make it work is if I only bring electronics with me that I'm throwing away at the airport before I get on my flight. Um, well, that, that's what I do when I go to Black Hat or when I go yeah. to DEF CON, I get a burn. No, I'm not joking. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to. You have to. You go. I never understood this. People bring their regular phone into a hacking convention. <laughs> Why would what do you, you think is going to happen? Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? Exactly. I remember one time I was at a, at a Black Hat event. And they had one of the individuals from McAfee. And he says, okay, everybody look at your phone. And when everybody looked down, and now I had a, a burner, the camera was on, you were looking at your face. Jeez. You know, they, they were probably using like a pineapple with a raspberry pie or something along those lines. But they, they hacked every phone. And I was thinking to myself, what do you think? you think I'm going to do that to my regular phone? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's crazy. I mean, once they, you know, get that sort of access, they could be there forever. You don't yeah. know. Well, once they're in, they're in. Yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, it's always the, let's say they, they hack your network. When I, no, when I get brought in sometimes uh, for networks that have been compromised, they're like, you know, what, what do you think we should do? I says, well, realistically, we built everything from scratch. But that's not going to happen because when you're talking about companies that, you know, have tens of thousands of servers with networks and they're all interconnected, and it, it, that's not going to happen. 
So then you have to go to active monitoring and bring in the other tools. You, AI is a big one. I think that's the future. We yeah. have to move in that, in that area. I think cognitive computing is where it's going to actually going to go, but I don't think we're going to get there until we get quantum uh, computing. The thing is, for the last 20 years, I've been reading that quantum computing is five years away. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like it never gets here. Yeah, I, I remember uh, reading an article about that back in 2014 when I was in college. <laughs> they were like, oh, quantum computing is, is almost here. Yeah. Um, there's only a few, like maybe two companies that like had quantum computers at the time. Um, it was like Google and maybe Microsoft, right? Yeah, Google has a good one. They have a good one. They have the Michigan University has the purple one, and IBM has, uh, has Watson. Uh, you know, you, if you look at the history of computing, uh, machine learning mathematics actually arose in the 1970s. And you still didn't, you didn't see it being used until the power of the computer could be compressed to basically a, a, a server level. That's when in about 2008, you started to see, uh, you know, Splunk, which is the first real machine learning one. So you're talking about 20 years later. And the cognitive computing mathematics arose in the 1990s. So we're probably moving into that phase where the power will be able to bring it there. Because cognitive computing is nothing more than a child. It's basically, right. it's a child. You have to teach it. I, I talked with a data scientist from IBM who worked on Watson. And they were, when they were trying to use Watson for security, uh, he says that it took him six months to teach Watson that a hash, you know, and, uh, for a regular hash and for security was not something you ate in the morning or you it was an illegal drug. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a child. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. I, I just recently, you know, started to dive into some light, very light, like ML AI stuff just to learn it. <laughs> and I'm still like trying to wrap my head around like how to properly, you know, teach that algorithm or that, that machine learning, um, you know, how to do different things. And I, I find it to be really interesting. I think, I think, you know, when I'm telling people, uh, to, to get into security, I always tell people, you know, to try and picture what domain that you want to specialize in and pick domains that are new and fresh that are, you know, maybe a few years away that you could potentially get in on, on the ground floor. And I tell everyone that, you know, big data security, I think that's going to be huge. ML, AI security, that's going to be huge. Um, cloud security is still very big. Um, that's definitely not going away because where's all the AI and ML and yeah. big data going to live, right? Um, what What do you typically tell people when they're, you know, trying to figure out if they want to go into security and, you know, maybe where they want to specialize in security. First thing I tell everybody is that cybersecurity is like being a doctor. You're going to constantly have to refresh all your certificates. You got to constantly be reading because pretty much every six months, the threat landscape keeps changing on you. So if you don't, if you're not one of those people, if you're the type of person that likes to go get a bachelor and then stop learning, you're the wrong field. And you don't need a bachelor's for this. I mean, or you really need a certification and the willingness to do it. And just like you, I tell them the same thing. Find a, a fresh and up and coming uh, field that you know is going to be coming up. Like cloud is now is huge. So if you're just breaking in now, you know you're going to get a job if you're doing cloud. Another one that you didn't mention was blockchain. I think blockchain security is going to become mm. huge. And now IoT is because is, with the standard, the U.S. is now pushed just in this country, but other countries are pushing the same thing because they see what utility companies. Uh, uh, imagine you're able to change the mixture of a water plant. <laughs> you you right. can technically kill thousands of people. Yeah. You know, so now it's become, a, 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 and I can tell you that from working worldwide, IoT is a very small field. People who do IoT security, you see the same names pop up over and over. That's a wide open field. And the problem is that a lot of these SCADA systems are 20 years old because they're meant to do that. And people who work in manufacturing and utility, all they want is uptime. Their thing is about uptime. So when you're talking about interrupting some of that, that's where the disconnects begin to happen. But those conversations are going to have to be had. You have no choice. So IoT security, blockchain security, like you mentioned, cloud. I think big data security is also going to be very huge. Uh, and just like you, I've, I've tried to educate myself so much on, on you know, big data and analytics. And, and it's like they speak a different language. 
It's the yeah. only way to put it. It's like a different yeah. language. It's like uh, it's like they're speaking like two or three different languages because yeah. you got to know the language to code the thing in, but then you also need to know the language, like the English language, around all of those domains and topics and everything. It's and the mathematics for the algorithm. <laughs> yeah, you you got to be a, a developer. You got to be a mathematician. Yeah, and you got to. <laughs> be you know an it expert i mean those guys are worth their weight in gold basically yeah that's why they're so tough to find <laughs> yeah, yeah tough. so you know touching on the cybersecurity job shortage so i i have this belief and please tell me if i'm completely wrong or off base here i have this belief that there may not be um there there is a shortage of talent right but the people that want to get into cybersecurity, uh, there is no shortage there. There's an abundance of people that want to get into cybersecurity. They just don't have the skills or the talent yet. Um, and so my thought with that is that if companies slightly change or alter their hiring practices to include those people that are passionate about cybersecurity, that don't have the cybersecurity experience, but they come in at the ground floor, right? They come in as the lowest security analyst that you can possibly be, and you train them up, uh, you know, to being good analysts, to being engineers and architects eventually, right? I think that that would be a potential solution to this this huge hiring shortage. W- what's your thoughts on that? Well, companies are trying to address it. Uh, a lot of companies I've set up what they call academies internally. So they bring people who want to get into the field and they train them. Uh, also, there are some other ones. I know CrowdStrike is one of them that actually sets up high school programs that goes into high schools and tries to get people into cybersecurity. they got to start early because other people are going to be competing for the same brains. Uh, and then beyond that is I agree with you that people have to be given an opportunity. I've hired people into cybersecurity that really uh, were no better than setting up a home network. But what I saw, there's three things I always tell everybody that I look for when I try to hire an individual. And that's willingness to work, willingness to learn, and ambition in life. I can't teach you those three things. I can teach you everything else, but I can't teach you those three things. And if you have those three qualities, usually you move up. I, I remember one that I bought, I hired in the UN and needed somebody to run a network. And when I hired him, uh, the guy basically just knew how to set up a home network. <laughs> that was it. But what I noticed is that when I checked in him and checked his references and everything, they, they everybody told me, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, he'll stay till three in the morning to get things done. And you hear the same story over and over. So I hired him. And my boss was telling me, I don't think this guy's helping, which is true. He didn't help me for the first six months. So I had a cover for him. <laughs> but a year later, he was running the, the worldwide network. You know, and this is a person. And so that's what I'm saying. Sometimes, you know, you will get your strikeouts. But I agree with you. I think people have to be given. I think companies are now starting to come around. Another problem that I see is that a lot of these security programs you see in colleges, all they're really putting out are orders. They know frameworks. They know governance. But you give this person a switch or a firewall, they wouldn't know the difference. Right. So I know that the uh, U.S. Naval Academy, and I believe now West Point is also, now they have an engineering side. So they're teaching that. And some colleges now are starting to develop those programs. So that's also where the disconnect is. A lot of these CISOs are basically frameworks and governance guys. Nothing wrong with that. But they don't understand the engineering side. So they have to rely on people who are engineers to do this. And if you don't understand how the technologies interact to help you secure a, a network, that's where the disconnects begin to happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Man, I, I wish I would have ran into more people like you with your hiring practices earlier on. It took me something like two and a half years to get into cybersecurity. Of uh, That's two and a half years from me deciding, okay, I want to get into cybersecurity and getting certifications, leveraging my current company that had zero security. Like, I mean, literally zero. Um, leveraging them so that I could create my own vulnerability management program uh, and, and trying to leverage that to get into the actual, you know, security dedicated roles. Um, I kept on hearing the same thing. You don't have enough experience with the different tools. I'm sitting here like, you want me to get experience with Splunk that costs like 1.5 million just starting out. And I'm a, I'm an average person. Right. Like, how am I supposed to get this experience that you're 
talking about like, how about you try me out for 60, 90 days? And if I don't work out, if I'm making things harder for you, if I'm not learning anything, then you let me go. Yeah. I, uh, I was even offering people to work for free, right? Like I like literally I'm like, okay, the, the currency here that I'm lacking is experience. Well, how do I get experience when I have really very few avenues to get experience? And so I was literally saying like, hire me as an intern. You can pay me nothing. Like I, I will literally, you know, show up and just come to work and try and learn. Right. And, uh, that didn't work, uh, obviously, but you know, eventually I, I found my, my path into security. And I do think that if you're passionate enough about it, um, and you keep going after it, something will happen. Something will eventually go your way, you know, and you'll be able to, to get into it and be successful. But, um, you know, I, I really wanted to talk about what's going on in Ukraine right now and maybe the, the cyber warfare aspect of it, if you want. Yeah, sure. You know, so can, can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the attacks that you've seen that, that are going on? Are they brand new attacks from Russia? Are they, you know, kind of right by the book? right that that russia um has been using for the past you know decade or so uh in cyber warfare i haven't seen nothing either they've done they've used what worked for them before uh i haven't read anything haven't seen anything i've gone you know one of the places and i always recommend this to people just be careful uh you go to the dark web the dark web yeah. is uh, so you have to door you know download your tour you know the router just, I just want to point out, if you, you use Tor, after 20 minutes, the FBI is going to be tracking you. They don't know what yeah. you're doing because they're going to drop something in your computer, but they're not going to see you. So uh, my advice, use a, a dual boot computer, uh, put a Linux version, and drop Tor. You know, just, and then just go from there. Uh, so you see what happens in the dark web. And you see, uh, it gives you an idea of the attack vectors and so on and what services do anything. But what, what's happening in the Ukraine, I haven't seen nothing unique. As a matter of fact, I don't, I don't even understand what the end game is for 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 Russia in a kinetic sense. They definitely yeah. is not a, it's not about invading and taking it all over. And if they wanted that, they would have committed more forces and done a lot more damages. It's not like they're doing carpet bombing. You know? So right. there's, there's always casualties and civilians, but I'm not seeing a you know like they haven't circled Kiev, but they haven't really moved in uh, to wipe it out. So it's I like wonder- the, uh, so uh, my point is I'm. I'm and I go back, what is their end game? Really, what is what is it that they're trying to achieve here? Because I, I haven't seen a clear tactic. Yeah, I wonder um I wonder if they're doing that in hopes that the Ukraine president will just like kind of secede power to Russia and just, you know, be absorbed by Russia, right? Like they'll willingly accept it. And I think Russia might have some mentality, right? That like that will save them on the world stage because it's like, see, like they wanted to join us. They, they, yeah. they wanted to, after we, you know, took over 95% of their country. <laughs> yeah. Well, the propaganda arm has been saying that they're basically the Ukrainians are Russians. So you see them yeah. both on LinkedIn, you see it in Facebook, you see it everywhere. So the propaganda side has been saying that and, the problem is that the reality is that for people who want to join your side, they're, they're, they're putting up a hell of a fight. The nationalistic right. fervor has gone through the roof. So that, that argument has gone out the door. So now I'm trying to figure out if they're just trying to remove the president. Let's say that the government that's in place is not what they want. They want somebody who, like in Belarus, who basically is a puppet to Putin. That's, that's probably mostly what it is. Yeah. That's, a, that's, what, I'm think, that's what I'm thinking, too. Uh, but there's other ways to go about that. I mean, you don't have to commit these many forces and, you know, you can do political change. You can do an orange revolution. It was done in the first place to implement this government in the Ukraine. So right. You can do the same thing back. Yeah, especially over in Europe. I mean, they do revolutions, like, all the time. Yeah. I was I was surprised by that when I was at the UN is that they basically switch parties every election. They'll go with the social Democrats, then they'll go with the conservative Democrats, and they'll go back and forth. Every election, it's just like these people are never happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I I mean, Putin's been in power for what seems to be forever. Definitely my whole life. Um, is is the only way out of this that you see for him death? Like, is he going to die in power? You think? Putin is a czar. That's that's what he is. Putin is a modern day czar. People think he wants to go back and build the old communist. This guy likes money too much, and he likes everything that comes along with it. He doesn't want to isolate himself forever. So he's basically a modern-day czar. Everything gets kicked up to him in one sense or another. He's making money from everywhere. Hmm. So how czars maintain power basically is by a feudal system where people that are around are that are also getting paid off. So the economic impact is what really, if, if he was going to be brought down, it will not be because of success or failure in the Ukraine. It will be because in the homeland, economically, uh, those who support him uh, are no longer making money and they're being ostracized. Oh. That's, why, that's why you see when they say we pass sanctions on Putin's friends, that's the reason why, huh. because they're suffering. So those will be the ones who actually took him out. I don't think the military is going to do that. I mean, I, I could be completely wrong. But that's how the systems work. China's the same thing with Z. He has his cronies, and they make the money, and the day that they get taken out, they'll have to take out Z. Same thing with North Korea. Huh. So it's it's the same principle. So that's where the economic sanctions and everything else have a higher impact in those countries than maybe some other ones. Wow, that's really interesting. I actually never thought about it like that. Um, you know, to be completely honest, when I – when I saw that all that we were doing was like imposing sanctions and like that sounds like it's way too little to have any impact on, on Russia, you know? Um, but when you put it like that, I, I guess it would really make sense that the, the economic sanctions are actually a more powerful tool to get it to stop than actual like warfare, like warfare will work right eventually, but it's going to be really bad. Um, on a lot of different fronts. So the economic sanctions is kind of like that middle ground where it's imposing, you know, hardships on the people that it needs to be imposed on while avoiding war. Yeah. It, it also depends on who you're putting it on. Like the Iranians are basically a, a, a modern day the, the, theocratic system. You know, it's, you have the, the two mullahs and then supposedly when else gets elected and runs the country. So when you put the sanctions, you are just basically hurting the people because they're not going to be hurt in any way directly. But the systems that you see in Russia today and in China and North Korea, it's about people that are propped up and they have to keep those people that prop them up happy. And the way they keep them happy is they get given the money. Hmm. So it depends what's being done on and what, what kind of systems they work on. Yeah. So where, you know, let, let's assume that Russia takes over Ukraine. Right. And it's like a part of Russia now. Where where do you see it going from here for Putin and Russia as a whole? Well, since the 1990s, one of the conditions that Russia has said is that they don't want NATO on the doorsteps. Now, you have to consider going back to World War II, in which Russia was invaded by Germany. So their mentality, and this is what Stalin did, was to create a buffer zone between Russia and the West which is what you had when you had the uh, the iron uh, the iron curtain. Oh. So that was actually just a buffer before you got to 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 Russia. NATO has been uh, enc- encroaching in their areas. Now you have the the Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are all NATO countries. Poland has joined. So they're trying to now create some form of a counter uh, to what they call a, what they consider a NATO aggression. So what they're trying to do is bring in countries into their fold to create somewhat of a buffer. So you have Ukraine has always been like the breadbasket of, of Russia. It's always been considered that. I mean, that's when you had the Ukrainian genocide. I don't know if you're aware of that, but the Ukrainian genocide. I'm not. Okay. When Stalin came into power in like the early 90s, well, he came in like 27, 28. But basically he went down to the Ukraine and says, listen, you guys got to feed the rest of Russia. And he's, he's going to give them these Things and when the farmers basically says no, we don't. We don't want. We want. We want to get paid whatever wages or whatever, to, whatever we want. He went and closed the borders and then bulldozed all the entire farms. He did this for about two and a half, three years, and that was known as the Ukrainian genocide, which between three to five million people starved to death. Wow. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about that. So uh, Ukraine has always been considered almost like a breadbasket uh, for the rest of. So that's the importance of that. So they provide the fuel and they provide the food. Huh. 
So to them, Ukraine has been asking to join NATO. And I think, uh, in my opinion, they've seen that as a threat. So they went in there to try to prevent that, change the government to try to prevent that. I think they could have done it differently. But again, I don't have all the intelligence. Why would you go militarily when you can do it from political means? Uh, right. So, you know, it's not fully understood. So, they, you know, they, you see a lot of the propaganda. You know, Ukrainians are all like fascists now. If you, see, if you read <laughs> it, you know, they, they, they talk about this oh, Zavoto group or whatever. This is like, you got you got fascists in every country. You know, it's an ideology that is not ever going to go away. That kind of disease is going to exist with us for as long as humankind is going to be around. So there's a propaganda arm to this. Uh, so, like I said, I, I I don't understand what the end game really is. The only thing that makes sense to me is that they want to change the government. But there's other ways to do that. You know, they did it in Belarus. They did it in some other ones. You can you can you can do a, a revolution that, that turns it to your side. I mean, uh, cheating in the elections has been uh, very effective for a lot of people for a very long time. Right. Maybe. I mean, the the only thing that I could think of is that they're maybe trying to send a message or something, right? Like invading sends a message like, you know, we can only be pushed so far. We're only going to take so much um, of this encroachment, you know, maybe that could, I, that I could don't be know. It. No, that could be it. I, I'm not, I'm not doubting it, but the problem is that now you have galvanized countries who are basically neutral to you, like Germany, now Germany is going to send arms. Uh, you know, Netherlands, Sweden, who's always been uh, neutral. Uh, Switzerland has always been neutral. Now is taking the side. So if, if, if what they were trying to do was to put some people on their side to help around the argument, it's working against you. Uh, so that's what I'm saying is I don't understand what the end game is. If, 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 mm-hmm. if, if they wanted to invade, Ukraine is basically flat. It's, it's, it's farmlands. If they wanted to invade, I mean, if you look at the American invasion of Iraq, I mean, in, in 30 days, they had wiped it all out. Right. You know, and in Kuwait, in four days, supposedly the fourth largest army in the world was wiped out. So if, if that was the intention, if you really just wanted to go in and wipe out, they should have been able to do that with the forces that they have. So that's what I, I keep thinking. What is their end game? They're definitely mm-hmm. not doing a carpet bombing. They're not like targeting civilians like just to create, create terror. Right. Uh, but at the same token, I'm trying to say, okay, so what is your end game? Why do you, why do you even, why did you even invade if all you want to do is change the government? Yeah, that's a really good point. Oh, that's man, it, it's so crazy. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, it's crazy everywhere, right? But like, I, I just feel like, uh, I, I don't know. There, there's more. There's obviously more things going on than we may ever know. Yeah, you know, and and um, I, I would. I would love to like be a fly on the wall in some of those rooms just to figure <laughs> out, you know, like for myself, right? Like it's uh it's really interesting though. I mean, before, you know, the United Nations, I guess, wasn't or UN, you know, wasn't like as united, right? Like the different countries in the UN weren't as united um on all these different, you know, things going on in the world, all these different events, kind of like you said, like Germany is typically, you know, neutral, Sweden, typically neutral. And the one thing that happened with all of this is that all of the countries are now united. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're all on the same page. They can all point to one thing and say, this is an atrocity. You know, this needs to stop, um, which I, I find to be very interesting um, that it, one, that it took something like this to unite everyone. Um, you know, but whenever I'm, I'm a little bit partial to Germany because I spent, uh, you know, some time in Germany and I really love Germany and I'm trying to actively convince the wife to, uh, move to Germany, uh, when we retire. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got 30 years. We'll see if that happens. Yeah. No, my point before was that Germany has been neutral towards Russia, but they provide the oil. Mm. They do take sides, but they they've been pretty neutral. Uh, but to the previous point, actually, after World War One, the League of Nations was made. Uh, it was yeah. by Woodrow Wilson and some other ones, and that collapsed because they didn't work on the structure. So the UN was made after World War Two to prevent the world from going to another world war. So at that point, it has worked so far. It was able to you know navigate the world through the Cold War, uh, which people may think that was a really bad time. But if you look at 
the numbers of wars that had been fought after the collapse of Russia to before that, it's, it's not good. Yeah, mm. and that's because you basically had two chess masters moving chess pieces on the board. And if anybody got too belligerent, they would whack them. Yeah. <laughs> Change governments. <laughs> Uh, so now it's a little, they only have one, and, and that uh, I think the U.S. Uh, homogeny there is, is also being challenged. So you know, th- this is history. And history is going to go go through its paces. And what we'll see, I, hopefully this won't escalate any further. I think cooler heads will prevail. I think they're talking now. We'll see what those talks really entail. Yeah. Yeah, it's, man, it's, it's really crazy. Just in my life alone, like I've seen so many like you know world changing events that will be in history books forever like you know it's like uh every couple of years there's another major event that's like oh that history books are gonna have to be updated yeah and that's that and if you look at it, it's actually post cold war yeah you know and, and the cold war everybody knew who the two superpower was and everyone else was you know they could do a little bit but it was basically they all work from those two ends so you had two dominant figures holding it. I mean, if you look back in history, you look at the advances of men when, when it was most technological and, and, and sociological and physiological, and physiological, I can't say enough, philosophy and, uh, oh. growth, it was when there was a major empire. I mean, we first saw that, you know, from the Mesopotamian steps. We had the Hammurabi Code and some of the other ones that arose from there. You had some of the Persian influences. And then you had the Greek Empire, you know, when, when Philip of Macedonia came down after the Peloponnesian War and conquered all of Greece, and his son, Alexander, basically conquered the world. So that area of peace and the superpower allowed, so you have to have that level of peace to for technology and so on to move forward. And again, you see, after that, you see the Roman Empire. And again, you see an explosion of, of knowledge. I mean, to today, I mean, a lot of what the Roman Empire left us, we're still a lot. We, we're a republic because there was with the Roman Empire adopted. People don't realize that the the uh, space shuttle and a lot of the rockets that we have today are still governed by the Roman Empire. And the reason is because the road the road size that we use, including the rails that you see on the railroad, are what they call a standard Roman road. That is the width mm. of the you know the two axles of the two wheels. So the size of the rockets and everything that they brought up from Utah and so on, they have to go through the tunnels and the railroad are limited by that. You know, so oh. the Roman Empire, even till today, is affecting who we are. And you see that. You have to have major – again, you see when there was a, a, a – the stability that you have when you first started seeing uh, democratic government. People don't know it's like the, 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 the Principality of Florence was actually a democracy. And that's where you started to get the Renaissance. So when you start getting that stability and the ability and also, you know, help, help a lot of the Medici's funded everything uh, in that area – so that helps to the explosion. We've been writing that because after that, you had a major empire with the, you know, the, the Spanish. Then you had the rise of the English and the French. And then you had now the United States. So we have about 500 years in which there's been a major power that's able to exert worldwide uh, influence, if not right dominance. And so it has given it a period of peace for people for and, and ideas to explode. Because once that goes a major, if you look at the periods where major powers have collapsed, up to the collapse of Rome in the northern part, that's when you get into the black, uh, dark ages. Basically, hmm. knowledge and everything, and a lot of stuff was lost. So you see the importance of major powers in the world stage. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I mean, you touched on, you touched on uh, quite a lot there. You, Got a pretty good, you know, handle on uh, history and kind of world politics, which I guess, I guess you kind of have to uh, working at the UN, right? Yeah. Well, part of it was I love history. I've been a history buff my entire life. I like reading it. I like military history. Uh, you'd be surprised how it repeats itself over and over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what we keep hearing, um, that history, you know, just repeats itself. I find the military history uh, pretty interesting myself. I, admittedly, I just haven't found the time to dive into it. Um, I'll probably I'll probably do that a little bit later on in life. But um, I've I've always found it, you know, ex- extremely interesting. Um, I mean, at, at one point in time, I actually wanted to go into the military, um, but it 
<laughs> that didn't work out for a few different reasons, of course. Yeah, I'm ex-military, so I used to be in the Navy. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to go into the Navy, but uh, when they found out that I donated my kidney, they wouldn't touch me. <laughs> yeah, that would, yeah. Yeah, they want, uh, they want healthy specimens. In case their, their, argument, their, their argument was that uh, if I get shot on my right side, I would die when a normal person would live. Would live yeah. And I said, well, if I get shot on my left, I'll live. When a normal person could still die, I will live. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to take that risk. I'm like, why don't you just write up a contract and let me sign away everything? What, branch, like, what branch were you trying to join? The Navy. Navy okay. The Navy declined me. And then I tried I literally tried every other branch and uh, it was the same, same story with all of them. Yeah. Well, I wish it would have worked out differently for you. Yeah. I, I do as well. I, I, I wish I could have like gone down that path um, in my life. Um, I've always, you know, wanted, wanted to serve definitely in the military and everything. And I was thinking about it right out of high school, but I felt like uh, my heart wasn't in the right place um, right out of high school because I felt like, you know, getting free tuition would be a big driver of me joining. And I didn't want that. I wanted to join because I wanted to join because I wanted to make the world better. Right. Um, and so I waited until after college and lo and behold, during college, you know, my sister got sick. So I donated my kidney. And then when I tried to go in, I, uh, I'm not able to, so it all works out though. We did the right thing in my opinion. Yeah. yeah a lot, a lot of people tell me that and I've, I've kind of, uh, learned to, you know, just make peace with it. Right. Like that's a part of my life that I won't, I, I won't have of being in the military, which isn't good or bad in, in my opinion. Right. But I think at the end of the day, you know, me saving my sister, giving her, some more years of life um, was a, a bigger win in my book. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes so, in life, rarely do we get everything we want. The right. Surprise, there's a surprise for everything. Right. So Doug, you know, uh, to kind of close us out, out here, I ask all of my guests uh, the same question. You know, if you had to give advice to someone that's trying to get into cybersecurity right now, what would you tell them? Maybe what's one piece of advice that you would tell them that could set them apart when they're in these interviews, when they're trying to think about where they want to go in security? Uh, first of all, find somebody who's been around the field for a while and just have a conversation with them and have mentorship. Uh, you're going to need certification. Certifications are more important than all the other paperwork you're going to get. So depending on what you're trying to get into, get some search. I've always found that the best cybersecurity practitioners have a networking background. So I always recommend at least a CCNA, uh, you know, like a Cisco or some other networking, because they, they're basically your first layer of defense because you're doing segmentation at that point. I also say do practice interviews. If you're going for a job, and I've done this with some of the individuals, have a practice interview. And if you're going for a certain position, because somebody who's senior is going to ask you certain questions. And some of the questions that you get may not always be just around technology. Some of the questions may be around situational to see how you think and how you react. I do quite a bit of those because in the team, it's more important that you're able to work in the team, especially if you're under pressure and what kind of person you are versus how much knowledge you have. I've had great engineers, brilliant, but I have to keep them in the closet in the back office because in front of people, they were basically hedgehogs. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. They had, they had no manners. That's so. That's a very uh, good analogy there. Like not all engineers are uh, have the social skills to, no. <laughs> to handle every uh, situation or speak to every audience. Yeah. So the main thing I would say is uh, talk to somebody who's been around. Uh, like you said, find out exactly what you would like to do long term. You may change your mind. There are certain certificates that are they, uh, like, you know, Network Plus. Uh, is, is Network Plus Security, you would call it that. Uh, Security Plus, and then CISSP takes longer to get. You can get a few of those, and you can start breaking into the field that way. I always recommend that people start with A, A, A plus plus security. And the reason is you have to learn how a computer works, and you get to build your own computer, just a basic course, because that's where it starts. You have to understand how memory works. You have to understand how the North Bridge, South Bridge works, how the chip systems work, because that's actually where it starts. And then I always tell them to try to go for an MCP right after that. 
which is a Microsoft certified. So now you know how a network works. Once you get an MCP, you're going to work at a help desk. Somebody's going to hire you. So you get your MCP. You're talking about six. Now, depending on how smart you are, how much you apply yourself, you're talking six months to a year. You're going to be breaking in. Like I said, have some conversation with somebody who's seen you. Once you get your MCP, now you're in help desk. Now you're inside. So now you can start specializing. I always recommend go for like a CCNA, understand networking, and then try to work in the networking field. Start as a junior, you know, simple routing commands and so on and so on. And then you start moving into security. You get your security plus and some of the other certifications. By that point, since you've been exposed, you should have a better feel of what you would like to do. Uh, and what I mean by that is that some people are very happy just being an engineer, just being hands-on and doing it. While other people want to move up to architects. In architects, you're going to be less hands-on. And then you can always yeah. move into management from there on and there on. But the main thing is to get some guidance right off the bat. Because if not, you know, books are great, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that that's who you are. You know, each individual is different. And like I said, do uh, you know, practice. When you go in for an interview, do a practice interview. Because some of the questions, uh, so, you know, get somebody who's been in the field may not be technical at all. Maybe just situational. Like I, I use situational. Like I'll give you an example. I use the situational. I'll ask them, you know, tell me a time you made a mistake. You push like the wrong rule in the firewall and you realize that that may impact uh, the operations. How do you handle that? And that's about self awareness you know and the normal procedure is well i own up to it or you know i go and tell my boss which is the same way and then i offer some solutions and then you know so that's that's what you want to hear but i've had people tell me well i've never made a mistake really a red flag <laughs> you know so that then you start seeing the personality side you know you ask some of those questions the meals are very I, I actually learned that at the un in the un there's three people when you get interviewed one of them is a technical one of them is just like looking at you, you know, how you see life. And then the other ones are situational questions. And they'll ask a few situational questions because they want to see exactly how you will manage certain situations. Yeah. Well, Joe, I, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I, I like the looseness of the conversation. How we just drifted between different subjects. It's not one of those structured ones that you feel like you're sitting on a panel and you have to answer a certain way. And I look forward. I look forward to being invited and speaking with you again. Well, thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thank everyone. You. Take care. Bye-bye.